Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond. A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. All right, let's dive in. Hi, Sam. You're getting ready for summer holiday in Scotland. (laughs) I've got to stop you right away because in my mind, it feels like I'm traveling north into winter. You know, I love Scotland, (laughs) but it's pretty cold. So, (laughs) Well, apart from trying to find Nessie, I'm sure you're going to be doing some reading as well because you're, you're probably not taking a lot of suntan lotion. So what are you taking to read? Oh, yeah. I've got a lot of of reading planned. Just before I spoke to you, in fact, I had the fun job of seeing what's on my shelves. Ah. I have a guilt pile, or in fact, <laughs> several <laughs> shelves full of books that I, you know, just haven't managed to reach for years and years and years. Uh, so I picked up, for instance, Edward St. Aubin, Nevermind, which is the first uh, in his Patrick Melrose series of novels which I have never read. And They're great. Year. Good selection. There I you approve. go. Yeah, great. Everyone has been telling me to read them. So this is the time where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I have Percy Jackson and the Battle of the Labyrinth by Rick Riordan. So this is the, and my, my daughter has been getting me to read the Percy Jackson books by Rick Riordan. Oh. Yeah, which has been no hardship at all. They're great. They're really good fun. They're really funny. They actually have really they're a really good take on you know greek mythology and they they really you can you can rattle through them they they go at a furious pace so that's going to be good that's going to be fun always listen to your to your kids recommendation on books right yeah i'm at the happy stage so she's she's 13 now and she's giving me good tips so it's (laughs) it's getting good (laughs) do you ever give her any tips on what to read or does she ignore them all Oh, actually, she's pretty receptive to a few ideas. I mean, she she plows her own, goes her own way. But yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> she's got a lot of books that I've, <laughs> I've given to Why her. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> okay, what else? What else you got? What else is going in that suitcase? Yeah, it's pretty ambitious, actually. I've got so I've got Funeral in Berlin by Len Dayton. I don't know if he's as, as famous in the US as he is over here, but he's a wonderful novelist who wrote mainly about spies in the cold war and ah. so uh john le carré i imagine is, is well known in the u.s you know george yes. Tinker Tailor soldier spy well len dayton he's always compared to john le carré it's not entirely fair because he writes in a different way he's much less elegant in some ways but his prose is also really vivid and effective and his stories are gritty and they too, they too rattle along. So I'm, I'm looking forward to plying through that. You know, a, a British kind of spy novelist that we sell an awful lot of at Interabang Books is um, Mick Heron. Are you familiar with Mick Heron? Oh, yeah. I haven't read anything by him, but I've heard a lot about him. And actually, yeah, I, he, he's almost in the Edward St. Aubin category. You know, people keep telling me I should read him, and I haven't quite right. got that. So <laughs> maybe next year. Okay. Anything else? Yeah, I've got a few. <laughs> so I've got The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Ah, <laughs> yeah. never, you've never read that one? I've, n- I've never read it, no. I don't, in fact, I know hardly anything about it, apart from, you know, the Scarlet Letter features. So, <laughs> Yeah, I can remember the two books that haunted me most in sixth grade were we read The Scarlet Letter 
And we also read Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, which I think is a horrible thing mm. to have. I don't know. How old would I have been in sixth grade? 10, 11? It was, it was terrifying. But Scarlet Letter, yeah, that's a good one. Okay. Hey, this is, this is sounding good. Like you're approving of me. I'm going to have a good holiday. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I've got Fernanda Trias, The Rooftop, as was recommended to us by Annie McDermott when we spoke about the Luminous novel. Charco Press, yes. Charco Press. And that you've got a you've got an advanced reader's copy of that or is that a finished copy? No, it's an advanced reader's copy and I'm three quarters of the way through and let me tell you <laughs> whoa, it's 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 a strange one. It's dark and unsettling and it's great. I mean, I'd really recommend this. I but, can't uh, wait. And I yeah, it but, comes out in the fall, right? Yeah, it comes out in October here in the UK. I think it's the same in the US. And yeah, there are quite a few taboos that are just blown apart in the most <sighs> disturbing way. But uh, I'm intrigued. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I don't want to say too much almost and give away the, the shock and horror that awaits. Uh, and finally, just in case I run out, and um, <laughs> <laughs> I've got the, the Woman in White by Wilkie Collins, which I have ah. read before. And You've so, read that one before. Yeah, I know I'm going to enjoy it. It's just glorious. I, I've read that one too, and I've always meant to pick up Wilkie Collins' Moonstone. Have oh, yeah. you read Moonstone? Oh, I've read Moonstone a couple of times. Yeah, it's it's really good. If you like The Woman in White, you'll you'll certainly like The Moonstone. I mean, Wilkie Collins, I just adore. So for those of you who haven't read Wilkie Collins, he's kind of a contemporary of Charles Dickens, um, was known for writing what were called sensation novels at the time so there are not you know as the as the name suggests there's there are big dramatic incidents and surprises and slight gothic twinge maybe tinge to some of them but they're just incredible page turners he's got a really strong social conscience like dickens so um, in fact his later books were kind of diverted almost by the 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 a famous complaint was that Wilkie Collins has got a cause and the whole novel would just be subservient to that. But before he got to that stage, you know, there's real grit and anger propelling the books and they're just beautifully, beautifully written. Uh, an immortal genius. So it's a, it's just a treat to read Wilkie Collins. Well, I think I, I read somewhere that in their time, Wilkie Collins was a much more read and famous author than Dickens was. I don't, I don't know about that. Uh, the honest answer is I don't know. But, I mean, he was very, very well read. But I think it's pretty difficult to be more famous than Charles Dickens in the, in the late 19th century. Yeah, don't quote me on this. And maybe I'm imagining or making it up. But I thought that, I thought that, I, because I think that Wilkins, uh, or Wilkie Collins, I'm sorry, also kind of his books were serialized like Dickens were mm -hmm. in magazines and publications where you would read one excerpt and then, you know, you would have to buy the magazine again mm. for the next week to read the next one. And I, I thought that I read that the magazine subscribers were were more for Wilkie Collins when, you know, when they were both writing and both subscribing. I, I'm, I'm sure that it wasn't long before Dickens surpassed him, though. Certainly, <laughs> certainly posthumously, everyone knows Dickens, but Wilkie Collins, not so much. No, that's right. But he does he does have his readers still. 
and they're, yeah. they're generally pretty pretty happy readers. <laughs> okay, well, I've got to put the Moonstone then somewhere on my teetering pile of about, you know, 233 <laughs> books to be read. Yeah. What, what else have you got? What, what have you got on your, your holiday pile? Well, one thing that I that I was interested in seeing was this article in the New York Times. Did you see that? Mm. It was about summer reading. Yeah, by Jennifer Harlan. Yeah. And I thought it was kind of interesting. You know, I've always been a little bit grumpy. I'll say grumpy (laughs) (laughs) about this notion that, oh, you know, let's, let's look for something light and airy for summer reading. Because it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me when you have this concentrated amount of quiet time for the most part when you're on holiday. I mm. guess you, that's that's in the in the best of circumstances you've had you'd have some some periods of quiet, and when you're least interrupted in life. And so, why are you just like going for the lightest, fluffiest thing you can find. I don't know. Is that just grumpy of me, Sam? No, I I understand that. It's the time. You should hit the the difficult stuff. It's when you're going to get it done. (laughs) Yeah, right. The challenging, thought-provoking, like I need to concentrate and not be interrupted. But this article in the in the New York Times was was interesting because um, they talked about kind of the history of summer reading and that it really kind of came into to vogue in the late 1800s with the kind of the process of making paper much more cheaply. And then also this kind of thing that happened with, in America anyway, people going off to summer cottages during the summer months to get out of the city, but they would usually be not too far from the city so that the men would go back into the city to work during the week and the women would kind of stay at the summer cottage. Mm-hmm. Just like an Edith Wharton novels. This is this often <laughs> pretty happens. much. Pretty much. Yeah. So they would have extra time without the guys around. And so mm-hmm. they would um they would read. And I guess it got kind of stereotypically, I guess, associated with, oh well, what books will women like to read? And maybe that's where we got pegged into this. <laughs> fluffy nonsense but i will credit that the article does go on to say that by by the 1950s at least authors were really and and literary critics were coming out and saying well you know you really should spend this time to read about a substantive important and kind of more weighty things like you know books about racism was the one that the article brought, brought up that the new york times uh, corresponded to the 1950s was suggesting that people, you know, read some books by Ralph Ellison and other, other important authors. So, um, so yeah, it was it was interesting. And in that vein, I'm not reading Fluffy right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in in the midst of in the midst of the August summer holiday, I'm actually reading um, the novel Mating by Norman Rush. Have you have you heard of Norman Rush? Have you read him? No, so I know I know nothing at all about Norman Rush. So please tell okay. me. Okay, yeah, he's a very cool guy. He wrote Mating thirty years ago. So there's actually an interesting article in the Point magazine by Scott Sherman talking about the importance of mating thirty years on. So Norman Rush grew up in California, but he and his wife moved to Botswana. 
as Peace Corps volunteers in the late 70s, early 80s. And so from that experience, he's written novels about Botswana. And what's kind of interesting about Norman Rush, one thing that I love is that he will have you turning to dictionary.com on your computer every other minute, because there's going to be a word that he's using on nearly every page that you're like, I've never seen that word in my life. (laughs) But the book is really, it does a lot of things, but what it does best, I think, is talk about two people who fall in intellectual love. So they have a, they have a, a sexual attraction and passion for each other, but they're also very big ideas people. So they kind of fall in love with, with their dialogue and their, their interactions with writers and sharing that. And it's, it's funny. It's also quite political at times because Rush himself was a pacifist and also kind of a socialist in, in, in the most benign respects. So he really believed in egalitarianism. He believed in, you know, believes in, he's still alive. He's 87. And thank God I just learned he's still writing and working on a novel. So I'm very excited, but I will read from you for you a quote, which I think this is my mantra in life going forward. I gotta, I gotta memorize this and it's all that I need. If anyone says to me, tell me what you're about. The quote is, the main effort of arranging your life should be to progressively reduce the amount of time required to decently maintain yourself so that you can have all the time you want for reading. (laughs) Very nice. Isn't that great? Yeah, it is. Although I'm going to spoil it slightly because the first thing it makes me think of is all those billionaires like Steve Jobs who, you know, who only have one set of clothes they don't have to think about. Yeah, what they're going to wear in the morning. But, <laughs> but I'm going to wear great, all yeah. black again and again and again. Yeah. So I'm hoping that on your holiday, you're going to decently maintain yourself so that you can spend <laughs> as much time as possible reading. Yeah, I think so. I think I'm going to try and go canoeing as well, but mainly reading. <laughs> okay, good. Well, have a great holiday, Sam. Thanks, Laurie. So we're going to talk about Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson, a novel from 1971. And Laurie, I've I've kind of made you read this book, haven't I? Yeah, you really have. <laughs> I just assumed that I would not like this book. I haven't been a huge fan of some of the, I don't know what I would call more experimental writers from the early 70s. So I wasn't expecting to like it, but I really did. So thanks, Sam. Hey, that's all right. And yeah, I'm so I'm de- delighted you you like it. And you know, part of the reason I made you look at it is because I'm one of those guys that read Huntress Thompson in what my early twenties and was just blown away and thought he was the the funniest and sharpest thing. And you know, I've he's a difficult character, and I've I've modified my opinion of him quite a bit over the years but actually coming back to his books as I have done recently has actually been a a really great experience because I've realized anew how good he is at some things but also how perceptive he is and he has that thing where you know we often talk about writers being 
prophetic and seeing things that are going to happen in the future in ways that others can't quite see. I I always struggle slightly with that because I feel it's not as so much as they're prophetic as they they see what's there already, but they just see it more clearly, and they realise that this is the important thing and and that this is really what's talking worth talking about. So, Hunter S. Thompson, it's there in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and it's there even more in his journalism. He was really aware of a lot of the problems with the American dream, as, as he put it, and problems in American society that have been haunting the country for you know the four or five decades since he wrote these books. And reading it now, you, you see he was really onto American fascism, and there are characters that, that crop up in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, for instance, that could have just come out of Trump's America. And the, the, the way he describes them, they're just like the people who stormed the capital almost and also an awful lot of the issues surrounding for instance black lives matter hunter s thompson was was onto that i don't want to say early because of course it's always been there and that's part of the issue but he really he really saw it and spoke about it really clearly uh in the early 1970s in a way that still seems upsetting today and but fresh and startling so so, for instance, the, the genesis of Fear and Loathing is this real fire and brimstone article he wrote for Rolling Stone magazine called Strange Rumblings in Aztlan about the murder of a journalist called Ruben Salazar, who was essentially killed by the police. And as Huntress Thompson really vividly describes it, they pretty much bazooked him almost at point blank range as he was sitting at a bar with a tear gas canister. And, you know, you, you read it now, it's really horrifying. And it's it's everything that Black Lives Matter people have been telling us about the way people are so easily killed and the police are so easily able to get away with these murders. And he he wrote he wrote the piece about this, and one of the main characters in the story was a lawyer. And this is where Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas comes in. And people who have read it who will be their ears will be pricking up because of course they're it's a double act book, really, with uh, the Raoul Duke, who is the, the Hunter S. Thompson character, and my attorney, as he calls him, who in real life was this guy called Oscar Zeta Acosta, who was fighting the police for in, in Los Angeles. Um, he was bringing a lot of cases against them for these kinds of killings and you know various other human rights abuses, I guess we could call them. Um, he was running a trial for six Chicanos, as he called them, who uh, had been arrested uh, under what he thought of as, you know, very spurious circumstances. Anyway, all this is going on. It's this, the pair, they went to Las Vegas initially, partly to talk about the details of these cases and the, the article that Huntress Thompson was writing away from LA in a kind of secure location. Of course, it, it says a lot about both of them that they thought Las, that Las Vegas would be a suitable place to do this. I guess they just thought they would get lost <laughs> in the weirdness. Um, and I guess it's it's good to point out, Sam, that this, I guess, would be what we would call today autofiction, right? This book. Ha, huh, would we? I don't know. I mean, one of the fascinating things about the book is where 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 fiction ends and truth begins and where 
you know, how closely you can pin it to reality. I certainly hope, for instance, they weren't taking, as in in one memorable passage in the the book, the the drug adrenochrome, which <laughs> you know they have to get from the adrenal gland of a, a human being. And uh, but th- yeah, there are a lot of things in there that that really kind of happened. So it, the initial assignment that Raoul Duke. Hunter S. Thompson takes up is to cover this race, the the Mint 400, which was a real event. And Hunter S. Thompson was commissioned to write about that for Sports Illustrated, I think it was. And he, the, you know, the piece really failed because, uh, as he describes in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, he couldn't see anything of the race because it was it's a motorbike race and the the bikes kicked up so much dust that no one could really tell what was going on. So. This kind of thing did happen, and perhaps even more shockingly, both he and Acosta did go to a police conference, which takes up the second half of the book about uh, about drug abuse, as the the police were terming it. And uh, they did apparently, you know, abuse drugs while they were there. Yeah, it's it's a it's. The second part of the book, right, when he when he kind of goes back to Vegas to cover, uh, the race is over now, the Mint uh, 500 or 400, and he's he's called back to Vegas with, you know, oh, there's another assignment, and now you're going to write a story about the National Convention on Narcotics and something <laughs> or other. So it's this huge Vegas hotel. I think, I think Hunter stays at the, and his attorneys stay at the Flamingo, but it's like thousands of like cops and sheriffs and undercover detectives. And of course he and his attorney are like totally blotto and consuming really what has to be exaggerated. I think it'd be death defying amounts of drugs the whole time during this conference. It's uh, it's, it's the irony of it is, is really very humorous. Yeah, it's it is. It's it's hilarious. And of course that's the main thing that you notice about the book is that it's so funny and it's so wild and so ridiculous in a lot of ways. But behind all that there is a real darkness and urgency. So the fact that Huntress Thompson and Acosta were at a, a police conference when they really had come into, you know, serious conflict with the police uh acosta especially and you know you know, this is this is really telling moment for instance in strange rumblings in aslan that article where i was a bit talking about where acosta tells huntress thompson why this poor journalist was killed and that the cops wouldn't even stand trial because they never do and huntress thompson writes i could accept that but it was difficult even for me to believe that the cops had killed him deliberately I knew they were capable of it, but I was not quite ready to believe that they had actually done it. Because once I believed that, I also had to accept the idea that they are prepared to kill anybody who seemed to be annoying them, even me. And that passage, of course, is deliberately reminiscent of the the famous line about the importance of resisting Nazi terror. You know, first they came for the Jews, then they came for the homosexuals. Then they came for the, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm misquoting him. Then they came for the gypsies and then they came for right. me and there was no one left. And, um, you know, this, so he, he, 
he, there's real urgency there. And one of his big themes was about the, the danger of American fascism, essentially. And the other thing to note is that just a short while before going to this conference, Hunter Thompson had been really badly beaten up by the police at the 1969 Democratic Convention where there was a, a kind of riot relating to all the stuff that was going on with Vietnam, which is, of course, is another huge element of the Fear and Loathing book, that the madness of that war keeps feeding into the story. And, you know, he really had been quite seriously beaten up. And one of the, the frightening things about it was that, you know, he was he was there as a journalist and it was clear that he was a journalist and he was still, still beaten up, even though he had, as he tells it, nothing to do with the, the disturbances that, that were happening. Yeah. So, I mean, you don't have to have that stuff in mind when you're reading the book, but it certainly casts it in a a different kind of light. Yeah. For all of the, for all of the humor of the book, there is, there is this very serious, you know, underlying theme. And actually the the subtitle of the book is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, A Savage Journey to the Heart of the American Dream. And, you know, I found myself when I was reading the book thinking about, well, what is the American dream? And do I still believe in it? And is it, is it, compatible? Is it something that is worth pursuing and can it be pursued in a, I don't want to get on a moral high horse, but, but, but can it be pursued without, is it, is it more than just a zero sum game? Can you achieve the American dream without also kind of destroying others? And it kind of gets into capitalist theory thoughts in my mind and other things, but, um, but you're right. I don't know whether you guys talk about the American dream or that's a concept anywhere other than over here, or maybe you have a very different view of what the American dream is supposed to be in the UK. Yeah. I mean, we we certainly hear an awful lot about the American dream. Everyone does. And I think we have a pretty, I don't know. what. Okay, here we go, Laurie. What is the American dream? Well, to me, um, the American dream is is to I, I don't I don't want to say easier but but to kind of like to live better than the generation before you that's kind of you know the whole bootstraps thing and you know I'm a first generation college student so first generation in my family that's been in the United States for over 300 years to attend college and so that that is kind of, you know, and we like to say here, like, America is the only country in the world where, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from and who you are, you can become something. And I think that's quite overblown. And I think there are a lot of other countries in the world where you can, you know, become the first person in your family to go to college and all those nice things. But but to me, kind of, that's the American dream. And, and whatever living better means for you, whether it doesn't necessarily need to be mean making more money. It can mean kind of living a more fulfilling life and being able to pursue your art or your interests at the same time as, as having a, you know, having a career and a family. But, you know, it makes you think about, well, America today and, and, and then as well, it's, 
people's pursuit of that dream of living a better life than the people that came before them, it's tainted for some and impossible for some just because of the, of the way our system treats some people better than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> thanks for a very nice summary. Cause I, I've, that's that's kind of how I've always imagined the American dream to be. And I suppose Hunter Thompson's reaction to it is, as you say, that things have soured and curdled and are going wrong. And there are, there are lots of things in the book where he is won over by the American dream, I suppose you could say. I mean, he, he there's the excitement of being in Las Vegas and the consumption. It's all, you know, there is that side of things that is very appealing. And, you know, for instance, all the drugs that the two guys are buying, they have this suitcase that they carry around with them everywhere. And that is like, uh, it could be seen as a, a crazy metaphor for consumerism and uh, the, the joys right. of indulging yourself and and being able to do these kind of things in a very free and easy way, <laughs> if easy is the right word for the, <laughs> the, the, the nightmare visions they start having. But uh, well, they, the, the consumption issue. I'm sorry. The, the, I was just going to say the consumption issue is is really is really a good point, and like they do like super crazy things, like like call up room service and order 16 large grapefruits, <laughs> or have 600 bars of Neutrogena soap yeah, like soap delivered to the their soap. room, <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it was, I was especially humored that it was the Neutrogena soap because they made a point about it's the it's the weird clear soap and you know so like the the whole the whole room is like just covered the floor is covered littered with just like these bars of Neutrogena soap and yeah there's definitely there's it's definitely a parody on the on the issue of consumption for sure yeah and I suppose the other the other thing to say about their consumption of drugs and that the wild way they behave is i'm sorry i i i'm conscious that i keep bringing it back to the, the serious stuff when it's such a funny book but contrast thompson one of the things he he always stressed that this wild behavior was a reaction to being in nixon's america and richard nixon of course was the the president at the time and again huntress thompson was very early in spotting what a crook Richard Nixon was, and he also got the the last word on that because you know, you know of course Richard Nixon after Watergate made that or during the Watergate saga made a famous speech where he got in front of the cameras and said, "I'm not a crook. Your president right. is not a crook." And Hunter S. Thompson got to write his obituary, which I urge everyone to read because it's absolutely fantastic. It's hilarious. But the first line, of course, is. He was a crook, full stop. Um, anyway, so he was so really. So where is where was that? I'm sorry, where was that obituary published? Oh, I don't want to say the wrong. Do you remember? Thing. Um, okay, well, I'm sh- I'll just Google it. Yes, yeah, <laughs> why don't you Google it and we can, we can patch it in later. Let's. Okay. We can just have this bit. He loathed Richard Nixon for for very good reasons and reasons that became plain to everyone in America just about, give or take a few notable exceptions, a few years later. And but he, you know, he knew that Nixon was a a liar and a crook and a killer. Let's not forget that the Vietnam War, for instance pretty much went yes. on for four years longer than it needed to because of the deal that Nixon and Kissinger had together and, you know, the way they and broke the, down and, peace talks. And, and the Vietnam War hangs heavy over this book. It, it comes up yeah. numerous times. Yeah, and I, I think that that is, that that's, that's really 
kind of the, the, the backdrop for this kind of thinking about what is the American dream? Because, you know, on the one hand, you have all of these like really, I don't know if you ever, have you ever been to Las Vegas, Sam? Yes. <laughs> well, then, you know, it's, it's like, it's like the land of extremes. It's extreme everything, you know, yeah. it's, everything is, is big. And so when people go there, they act extreme and they look extreme. And so you have all of these, like, just kind of like movie stereotype kind of just places in in Vegas where everything is just bigger than bigger than life and people are wearing more glitter and more makeup and it's just it's just excess and you have what that might say about the american dream uh, juxtaposed with you know the war and nixon yeah. and all of these absolutely horrible things that are happening in the country and in the world under us leadership at the time that's right that's exactly right and hunter s thompson one of the points he was making is that in fact he said it explicitly to be a freak in nixon's america is actually the only honorable way to go so this path of excess and madness and derangement was a reaction to all of the the stuff that's going on in the world around them and you you can really see it in the book that you know for instance there are there are very often you will get a a moment from the radio coming and talking about all the people that have been slaughtered in Vietnam yeah. and the, the terrible things that are happening over there. But it just it just feels like one more thing on top of all of Hunter S. Thompson's behaviour. And there's a really, really quite sad moment where he's he's thinking about, you know, how terribly he and his attorney have, have been behaving and kind of thinking, well, maybe we're in trouble here. But then he reads the paper and sees, okay, you know, compared to everything that's going on, actually, we're kind of fine. But then then the, the real sadness comes in because there's this description in the paper of Muhammad Ali talking about the fact that he's not going to go to Vietnam and that he's, uh -huh. you know, his famous line that he hasn't got no quarrel with the Viet Cong. And the only person that gets punished in the book that gets some kind of comeuppance for all the terrible behavior and who doesn't get away with it is the one person in the book who who is sane and who does the right honorable and decent thing which is muhammad ali in refusing to go and kill strangers and muhammad ali we're told he gets five years in prison for that yeah yeah it is interesting um how in the midst of all of these like well not sleeping, you know, going 24-7, being fueled by just unbelievable quantities of drugs and booze, doing all these outrageous things, driving 120 miles an hour down the Vegas Strip. Hunter Thompson's character comes back again and again to, oh, I, I got to I gotta get a newspaper. I, I need to sit down with a newspaper. He, 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 he stays connected to the world, but yet everything that he reads is so is so hurtful and sad that I won't say it bounces off of him because I almost feel like it it he absorbs so much of it and you're right what I I think that what the story is saying is that a lot of what he's doing and his behavior is just a reaction to just the lunacy that is the that is the real world that's right yeah I did want to just comment on 
what I thought was the funniest part of the book. And it's in part two. And it's when they are at this national convention for the elimination of narcotics or some such silly title um, with all of these thousands of police officers. And he and the attorney go and actually sit for maybe like 20 minutes at this conference. And <laughs> and what they're so astounded by is like how the police and the detectives who do this for a living, okay, they're like the narcotics branches, the best of the best in the country. And they're like using all of these like super antiquated terms for all the drugs. And they're, <laughs> they're talking about the marijuana and they're talking about all these drugs that Hunter and the attorney are just like sitting there looking at each other like, you know, well, that's so 60s. And it, and it, it reminded me a lot of, I don't know whether you had any coverage of it, but uh, years back, maybe three years, I don't remember, but there were these hearings on on Capitol Hill with, I don't remember whether it was House hearings or Senate, but they brought some of the leaders of like Facebook and Twitter and a lot of like the social media type of platforms in to testify about, you know, like monopolization and all these different things. And the questioning was just bloody hilarious. I think Saturday Night Live actually did some skits because these like 80-year-old Congress people are asking questions. But before they would ask a question, because they weren't really savvy enough about the technology to even ask a good question, but they would like preface some of their questions with like, well, I know that my grandson spends a lot of time on the Twitter, um, you know, just like all of these ludicrous things. And I don't know, when I was reading that scene where they're in this narcotics convention, that's what like kind of came to my mind that you're just like, you're so out of tune to what's really going on right now. Yeah. And it's so funny that Raul Duke and his attorney, you know, they're the real experts, but they're the last people that the police actually want to hear from. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Well, Sam, any kind of parting thoughts about the book? I would encourage everyone to read it. I think it's it's a fan, it's a fast read and it's a super fun read. Yeah, I mean, I guess we should also acknowledge that it's it's a difficult, problematic book, and you know, Ral Duke and the uh, the attorney are not not good role models. But then that is part of the point that this madness is has this months this monstrous behavior has been created by. Yeah, the they're surely not the boys. World. They're surely not Boy Scouts, that's for sure. <laughs> they are but not Boy um, Scouts. <laughs> well, thanks, Sam, for uh, for having me read this book, and it was nice talking to you about it. You too. Thank you. 